so excited about the next two days and what a beautiful introduction as we've just heard all of creation echo God's adoration <laughs> um, because you know th there's no way in which we can worship God accurately there's no better way to do it than to reflect the adoration he gives us and I think that's what we see in all of creation, that, that echo. And as I was watching it, I became so aware that, that beyond these sounds, beyond these noises, it's the very consciousness of God that finds echo in you. Um, you know, a few months ago, Mary Ann and myself, for the first time after five years of traveling constantly, we actually settled down for uh, um, a little while and we went to a beautiful area in South Africa, the Cedarburg. And uh, it was the most beautiful crisp night. It was a, s a summer's night and um, no lights around and, and it was new moon so you know no moonlight and as the sun was setting and the last bit of rays caught the the, um, the mountains all around us the heavens just lit up uh, and it was overwhelming because i couldn't remember when last i saw the stars and the heavens like that and we just lay back on the grass and it's like our senses had to reset and we had to remember what it sounded like to hear nothing. No cars, no noises, just like a distant choir of insects. And there was suddenly this, this memory, not, not the memory of something I've experienced before, but more an inherited memory as I realized how generation upon generation have looked up at these skies and experienced the same majesty and what really kind of hit me in that moment is that none of those stars are aware of their own beauty <laughs> now that those that light might have traveled a hundred million years to hit my eyes this evening what a mystery that in you their beauty can be recognized what a, what a mystery of consciousness um, there is in humanity. And I, I think it's nothing less than God investing his own consciousness in us. And so over the next few days, I'm so glad for having some time because these beautiful thoughts need time to, to explore and to, to put down. And we're going to make lots of time for conversation as well kind of want to give you a taste where we're going and thank you for such a great introduction uh, in, in terms of the expectation that uh, we might explore areas and avenues that, that we haven't, that you might not have explored for a long time or maybe never yet. But that's part of the adventure because if there's something I realized in our, you know, pursuit of this wonderful journey with God is that very often it is what we know about God that keeps us from experiencing God more. It's very often our definitions 
the things that we are certain about, the things that we already believe beyond any doubt, ironically, those are the things that keeps us from experiencing Him <laughs> the way He wants to be experienced. And so, if God is going to reveal himself and, and, and make himself known in a way that you have, you have not experienced him before, one of the first signs of that happening is that your definitions of God and your beliefs start crumbling. And that is such a positive thing. Such a good thing because I know, you know, many of us would like revelation to simply be an experience in which God comes to confirm how right we've always been. <laughs> but um, there's something much more powerful about revelation, and it is those areas that I hope to explore. Uh, we may Phil, what, about four or five years ago, Mary, Mary Ann and myself were at that stage traveling through, through the States. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to, we might get to me giving a bit more of an introduction. This is the first time I'm traveling without her for five years. We've constantly traveled together. So uh, she kind of just helped my um, parents out with some situations there. <laughs> um, at home, but uh, the journey that I hope to to take us on through this uh, through this few days, maybe I must start off with with telling you what the intention is for the end of this period, where I hope we'll get to, so that you understand that this is my intention. I hope that at the end of these two days, I just trust there will be such a sense, a deep, deep sense, that something truly beautiful and truly new is possible for your life. That's kind of the simple destination we're heading to. Now, how are we going to get there? is going to involve some very exciting stories. And the first story I want to begin with with this morning is the difference between certainty and possibility. Because, you know, the first, if you remember in the intention where we want to head, is a deep, deep sense that something truly new and beautiful is possible <laughs> for you. Um, and so let's first start off with this idea of certainty versus possibility. You see, we can never reduce a possibility to a certainty. If something is possible, it's not certain. These are just like abstract, logical kind of ideas, and you can follow that. If something's certain, it is no longer a possibility. And if something's a possibility, it is not certain. <laughs> now, why is that important? Um, I think this will 
become even clearer if I take two new metaphors as well that kind of links in with that. The, the metaphor of plan and the metaphor of story. You see, most of us are familiar with the metaphor in which we describe our relationship with God as God has a plan for your life. Um, and we have pushed that metaphor to such an extent that I think it's maybe useful to kind of explore some of the limitations of that idea as well. See, plans are... The best plans have few surprises. The best stories have many surprises. Okay, plans are designed to limit and to control the future. <laughs> stories unfold naturally. Um, and some of the best stories only make sense when you get to the end. Now, have you ever gone into a movie and within the first like four or five minutes you know exactly how this is going to play out. You know who's the good guys, the bad guys, and you think, why did anyone bother even writing this story? The best stories has got twists and turns that no one saw coming. And it's only from the perspective of the end that the beginning finds its true meaning. <laughs> you see, um, the idea that God stands at the beginning of time as the divine architect with a blueprint in his hand according to which everything will unfold, to conceive of God in such a manner is to enter the boredom of a predetermined existence. It is to enter the slavery of a uh, a universe that has no real possibilities <laughs> in which all things are certain. But you know, when Jesus introduces us to his Father, he says, this is the God to whom all things are possible. Not to whom all things are certain. Now, we're going to explore that idea a bit more. But um, uh, I, I'm going to, this first session is giving a f ideas that we're going to unpack much longer in, in the time to come. So, let, let me take let me show it another way. Um, unfortunately, I think many of us, I speak for myself, have had times in which we have confused faith with certainty. Especially when you come out of a bit of a word of faith kind of teaching and you've pumped yourself up with all of us. You, it's very easy to quickly confuse faith with certainty. Um, but when we go and examine the heroes of faith, Hebrews 12, it quickly becomes obvious that God's journey with these people is not a journey to bring them back to the certainty of the familiar. 
God's journey with his people is not to kind of draw them back home and make them comfortable in the, in the known. Every journey of faith is God calling people from the known to the unknown. He's calling people from the familiar to the unfamiliar. He's saying to Abraham, hey, I want you to leave everything you know. I want you to leave your country, your family, everything. This this is a big ask, God. I mean, at least tell me where we're going. No, 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 just come. And as you come, I'll show you. (laughs) Can you see that faith becomes most obvious within a situation that is totally uncertain? In a situation where... Um, you know, success is so unlikely. Welcome, welcome, come through. <laughs> and so, uh, the, the, the faith becomes most obvious in the most difficult situations, in the most uh, uh, unlikely situations. That's where it becomes obvious. In other words, maybe it's not doubt that's the opposite of faith. Maybe the opposite of faith is certainty. (laughs) And uh, that leads me to kind of explore maybe the positive side of doubt. Did you know there is a positive side of doubt? You won't hear many sermons on divine doubt, but... (laughs) Here we go. Today's the first one, maybe. (laughs) Doubt, you know, doubt can be a precursor to a more honest faith. Doubt is that invitation from God that says, Hey, you've outgrown your small ideas about who I am. Doubt is that invitation of, Hey, I've got so much more (laughs) than what you have experienced so far. And so we suddenly move from that place where what might have originally drawn us towards Christianity and God was this promise that he has all the answers to all your questions. But I think you will realize that the longer you remain in relationship with this God, He actually turns out to be the one who questions all your answers. So, let me say that again. He's not not the God who just wants to give you all the answers to all your questions. Because so many of our questions is kind of so irrelevant within the world of confusion that we live in. But he's the God that comes to question all those answers, to kind of sow a bit of divine doubt in all your certainties, to come and create a bit of room for who he is. And throughout the ages, mystics have kind of explored this area of knowledge of God. They, in theological terms, they call it uh, the, the negative theology, which, you know, sounds quite negative. But basically, all, all it means is that 
Ah, there's so much of God we cannot say. <laughs> there's things we can say, but it's very, whatever we can say of God is always in metaphor language. For instance, we, we can say our relationship with God is maybe like a plan, but actually it's not a plan. <laughs> See, every metaphor has got it is and it is not in it. When we say, that's why it's a metaphor, there's something like it, but it's not exactly that. And so what they've always said is in our, whatever we can say of God is in metaphor and, and the most accurate statements about God is what he is not. <laughs> in other words, um, one of the mystics said it this way, uh, to experience God is to experience the complete and utter failure of your own intellect. Now, this doesn't mean that our intellect is not involved. I mean, we love the Lord our God with all our minds. We pursue Him to the, to the furthest degree that we can um, in, in all of our being. But it is when we come to the utter limits of what we can know, that we know that God has not only filled up all our knowledge and given us all this, but He's still more. But he's never captured. Maybe, has any of you seen Icons of Beauty, our little video? Nobody, great. And I'm going to explore that idea now. <laughs> I've just been in one of the most beautiful parts of the UK here, up in uh, Windermere. And it was so fun because for a week of driving through floods and rain from one venue to another as I entered um, Windermere. It was just this crisp, sunshiny day and those snow-covered mountains just rose and oh, so beautiful. I had time to go and explore it. And uh, you know the kind of beauty I'm speaking of, those beautiful, crisp winter's day that's quite unique to the UK. <laughs> And, um, but no matter how beautiful those mountains are, they don't capture all that beauty is. Can you agree with that? You, you might see a sunset or a sunrise and we can all agree, wow, that's beautiful. Yet, it doesn't capture all that beauty is. Beauty remains more than any one picture, any one scene, Beauty, you know, it, it, it gives itself freely to anyone who is simply prepared to be astonished. But it never submits itself to any one definition, any one picture <laughs> of what beauty is. And maybe, maybe God is more like beauty we fall in love with than statements we have to believe. And maybe our most accurate way, just as the way in which we suddenly are overwhelmed with this beauty, sometimes the most accurate description of that beauty is just silent wonder. <laughs> 
Maybe that's why many of these mystics said that your most accurate description of God is that moment in which you're just overwhelmed and you're silent. You see what? Where idols and, and where these uh, things come from today, we, you know, if we think back of where idols came, the beautiful carvings, nobody set out to make a false god. People actually had an encounter with the divine. They encountered something beautiful. And they wanted to capture this moment in whatever way they could. They, they wanted to preserve this experience to, to maybe help others encounter that experience as well. So they turned to their poetry, to their, to their art, to try and capture this moment. Now what is perverse about the idol is that what it captured was my moment of inspiration. What it captured was my view of the divine, but it pretends to have captured God himself. Today we, especially in our Christian communities, we don't do carved idols anymore, but maybe we still do. I know we do. We do carve many conceptual idols. We take the moment of experience of inspiration that we enjoyed and we enshrine it in our doctrine and we create these abstract idols in which we pretend to have captured the thought of God himself. <laughs> now what you have captured is your thoughts about God. <laughs> That's why Augustine said, if you can understand it, it's not God. Uh, let me give you another one. Master Eckhart, one of his famous prayers is, God, please deliver us from God. <coughs> what did he mean? It says, God, please deliver us from our ideas about you, from our concepts about you, from our predefined expectations of what you should be and how you should act in our lives. Um, Thomas Merton, who had many conversations with uh, Zen priests, and I'm quite excited. At the end of the week, we have an appointment to have that kind of conversation. But then... In Zen, they would say something like this, maybe a bit more shocking, because they're very more focused on their experience of God, and they would say, if you find God, kill him. <laughs> and so in all of this kind of ideas, they, what they're trying to say is, yes, this is a beautiful journey of pursuit. Yes, this is a beautiful experience of who he is, but let's not limit the experience of God to any predefined <laughs> set or formula or framework to say this is what God should be like, must be like, etc. You see, the, the God who is the God of infinite possibilities so wants to surprise you. 
<laughs> he so wants to bring you back to that joy. Some of the scripture speaks about that, that first love, that moment of absolute surprise. That someone can like me that much. <laughs> Where you fall in love. And that is what they're inviting us back to. Now, we're going to do a lot of mental pursuit and whatever. But at the end of the day, the sin, because maybe let me, let me put that in perspective then. then if our words cannot capture God, if, if it's so easy to form idols out of our con concepts, what is all this talking about for the next few days? Can't we just all sit in silence and experience much more than what we would have if I carried on talking like this? You know, aren't you... In the very act of saying these things, invalidating everything you say. <laughs> well, there's a beautiful metaphor again that is used of Jesus. And I quickly want to draw those two out there. So we've looked at the thought of idol. What is an idol? It's when I pretend to have captured the thought of God pretend to have captured God himself, whether it's in my concepts, in my art, in my whatever. I've, I've got hold of him. It's quite interesting how Paul, now we think Paul, surely Paul should have had a good grip on his theology. I mean, he writes most of the New Testament. But Paul tells us quite plainly in Philippians, guys, I'm not quite sure what I'm talking about. Do you know that, Philippians? He says, uh, I haven't quite attained to this knowledge yet, but what I want to share with you is something got a hold of me. And, and so the reason I'm writing is not because I got a hold of beauty, but beauty got a hold of me. <laughs> and this has brought about such an experience that, that somehow I want to point you towards that beauty. See, on um, how many of you have walked on Val, uh, Hal Villain before? <coughs> A few of you. Oh, and what can we say to the others who's never been? It's hard work, definitely. But it's worth it. What, uh, what beauty. What. You see, if, if our description of Hal Villain of the beauty that we've seen there, if it inspires you to go and experience it for yourself, then our words have found their greatest purpose. And that is to point beyond the words to the actual experience. They've become icons of that beauty. Instead of saying, hey guys, really, let me spare you the hard work just listen to how we describe Hal Villain carefully. Believe it wholeheartedly and you'll experience the same beauty. You don't have to go there yourself. Do you see what we've just done? We've, we've made our description, our words, the idol. <laughs> so we do speak. We do communicate. But we acknowledge that our words point beyond 
themselves to a reality that can never be captured in the words alone, to a reality that we hope that you would go and, and find and experience yourself. When that happens, our concepts becomes icons instead of idols. Do you know that Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the icon of the invisible God? Now, we all know icons on our computers. You know, it's that, that little image that we can click on that opens up an application that has much more functionality and data and capability than the icon itself. But the icon is the point of entrance. The icon is the place of access. Um, the icon is not the program. You see, what we've done with Jesus is, again is we've made Jesus an idol. <laughs> we thought, yeah, finally we can capture all that God is in our ideas about Jesus. But Jesus is the introduction to an experience that would continue to unfold to a God who will never get to the end of unveiling himself, to a God who continues to draw you into a place of surprising you with who he is and who you are. <laughs> Because you see, there's nothing that so limits who you are than what you're already convinced about and what you already believe about yourself. <laughs> it's the story that you believe up to this moment, the experiences that you've had up to this moment. It might have become so convincing that you thought that's me uh, I wonder if I should go into this how much time do I have about okay okay so I've got okay let me just carry on with this train of thought then hmm <sighs> We, from our earliest ages of consciousness, um, we are beings who search for meaning. Psychologists would say this is why we develop from one level of consciousness to another co level of consciousness. We, we seek meaning and, and we reorientate ourselves around new realities that we've discovered. Um, I was walking past the tennis court just before I came over here where a family of four was trying to have fun in South Africa. It was mom, dad, about the seven-year-old and the three-year-old. And the three-year-old just could not understand why every ball did not come to him. Uh, and in one of the instances, the older brother ran and hit the ball, and he just had a tantrum. He fell down paralyzed, just sobbing that how dare anyone else get that ball and so even the older brother kind of acknowledged you could see some compassion for this little guy that was in obvious turmoil at the discovery that the universe does not revolve around him alone 
and um, his dad picked him up and comforted him. But what happens there in that, that new reality has struck. Uh, I might have to share things with my brother. Uh, and as he now reorientates himself around the new reality, new consciousness develops. And that's a process that carries on throughout life. Uh, we keep on throwing the tantrums, but we kind of hide them a bit better. But we, we've got to adjust ourselves to new reality. But from the earliest moments of consciousness, we seek meaning. We des desire to understand. And that is what drives our development. Now, what happens in that process is we look at the events of our lives, try to find meaning in them, and there's nothing that gives our life events more meaning than putting them into the context of a story or a bigger sequence of events. <coughs> and this happens mostly unconscious, but as we ask, what is the thing that connects all the events of my life? What is it that gives them meaning? The conclusion we come to is that there is nothing more central to my memories than the I that remembers them. There is nothing more central to my experiences than the self that experienced them. And so this is what psychologists would call the autobiographical self. It means, it means more than I am something and I have a story. It actually means I am the construct of my story. I am that process of seeking meaning and, and finding meaning within this, my life events. Now, for a certain period of life, we, we allow experiences to teach us and to tell us who we are, what we are, but there comes a period where we've figured it out. We know who we are. We know how life works. And from now on, we're going to teach experiences what they mean. And so you might even have an experience that completely contradicts everything you believe about, but you'll find a way to deconstruct that event and then reconstruct it to confirm. I told you so. This is how my... Because it must fit into my story. You see, if, if you find yourself in your story, you find your security in being right about your story. Have you ever noticed how right you are? <laughs> I mean, the, the whole world might be wrong. <laughs> He's still right. But that's why we don't deal with contradiction well. It doesn't just contradict facts. It contradicts me. Now, in the midst of that world where we find ourselves in our stories and, and we find our security in being right about our stories, the gospel is the gloriously good news that you are wrong. <laughs> that God is so much more than what you thought he is. That you are so much more than the story you've been telling yourself up to this moment. 
See, much of what has influenced our sense of identity in the Western world has been supported by philosophers like Descartes, who, who is famous for saying, I think, therefore I am. I don't need anyone or anything else to be myself. It's my thoughts that defines me. I love Jean-Michel Marion. He, he wrote the whole book just looking at Descartes' um, influence upon Western society, and he explores that one thought, I think, therefore I am. And, and the conclusion of that book is stunning. He concludes it this way. He says, actually... Somebody else can do your thinking for you. But nobody else can do your loving for you. I love, therefore I am. Isn't that a beautiful conclusion? And so you see, if, if we move out of this place of, I find my security in being right about my story because what we do then is we surround ourselves by people who confirms who, how right I am, by books and teachings that confirms I'm right. And, and, and we build this little wall around this small little self that can only exist when it's right. The gospel comes to liberate you from your own illusions. The gospel comes to say you are so much larger than that little self that you've created. You are loved. And that is what makes you, you. And you are loved even when you are wrong. Woo! Isn't that good news? <laughs> And when we find our security in that knowledge that above anything else, more significant than anything else, I am loved. That is what defines me. That is what creates me. That is what sustains me in this moment in existence. I am loved. When we come to that point, it is so much easier to take our beliefs and say, I can now honestly go and examine them. Because I'm no longer finding my very existence in my beliefs. I find my existence in a relationship beyond belief. <laughs> uh, and so I can now go through those beliefs and say um, maybe it's time after 30 years that I unwrap this gift that I was given by my community by my parents because most of us are handed our beliefs by the traditions and the communities that we've grown up in and we kind of leave them as neatly little wrapped and examined gifts that's just there. <laughs> but to go further in your exploration and enjoyment of God, we often need to go and examine those unexamined assumptions. And some of them might not survive.
<laughs> Some of them might say, wow, I thought that's absolutely foundational to my faith, but actually it just doesn't matter. And others might become even more precious to you than what they've ever been. Because if something is true, you should be able to examine it from every angle. And it remains true. Isn't that so? <laughs> and when you have examined some of those deeply held beliefs and, uh, and you come again to that conclusion that it is true, your appreciation for it is going to be so much higher. Your enjoyment of it is going to be so much deeper. Thank you for listening to the iDestiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.